The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to Scorebox this Friday morning with Jeff Cutmore, Karen Cho and myself, Steve Sedgwick. These are your headlines. Wall Street snapping a three-day losing streak as big tech bounces back whilst initial jobless claims hit a fresh pandemic-era low. Elsewhere, Uncle Sam wants your crypto cash. The U.S. Treasury looks to tighten regulation of digital currencies by forcing uh, trades of uh, $10,000 and above to be reported to the IRS. Milking it, Oatly shares saw 19% on its stock market debut after the alternative milk group prices its NASDAQ listing at the top of the range. We didn't try to, to mimic animal-based milk or anything like that. You know, we just wanted to do, you know, a milk that was better for people and the planet. BMW expects a billion-dollar boost to second-quarter earnings as it's a Delta milder antitrust fine than expected for alleged collusion with rivals on emissions. And we are six hours into an Egypt-brokered peace deal between Hamas and Israel, bringing to an end 11 days of fighting that has claimed the lives of more than 240 people. I believe the Palestinians and Israelis equally deserve to live safely and securely and to enjoy equal measures of freedom, prosperity and democracy. My administration will continue our quiet, relentless diplomacy toward that end. Market steadily uh, growing over the course of the trading session. A little bit slow morning session, but getting to higher ranges by the afternoon. You can see by the finish, it was a strong percentage jump, particularly for the NASDAQ, uh, again, of almost 1.8%. couple of big moving stocks, Apple for the S&P and the NASDAQ, and also Microsoft for the Dow. And you might ask the question as to why technology is bouncing, given all the concerns around inflation. Well, yesterday we saw this activity index on business, a business activity reading which came through weaker than expected. Uh, that prompted some concerns about just this market mindset about how quickly the recovery is happening. Also, a big drop in commodity prices that reset expectations to around inflation. And what you had was a market rally that unfolded as a result. Uh, U.S. tech up close. Let's take a look at those gains in the likes of uh, Apple and Microsoft. 2.1% pop for Apple stock, Microsoft 1.4%. You can see across the board, Twitter ranges much higher than that, 3.3%, and a solid game for some of the other major names, including Tesla, one of the big momentum names that's been battered of late, 4.1% gain. Over the course of the week, uh, this is how we've traded with a little bit of volatility in the mix. The Dow down uh, almost nine-tenths, about a third off the S&P, but the Nasdaq in favour. It's quite ironic. We've been talking more about uh, the Nasdaq being under pressure of late and how resilient the Dow has been. But with uh, some of the increased market volatility, it's been those rebound areas of the economy that have also suffered. And as a result, this week uh, just saw bigger size falls. The energy story, too, has been an important one this week as we've been closely eyeing what's happening in the Middle East around Iran and whether there could be a potential deal. 
at some stage. <clears throat> Let's take a look at the Treasury market and those yields. Uh, the morning session, 1.63 is where we're sitting. So we're not seeing any elevated concern in, in the yield. There wasn't a bit of steepening uh, this week as investors paid attention to some of the minutes and, of course, that taper talk that they may talk about eventually. That was one of the big market-moving pieces. But, you know, there are lots of different factors being built here, uh, including the, the points I mentioned about the latest activity reading the survey data for business and that oil price. And speaking of oil, uh, always a big catalyst for the Asian market. So let's just see how they are faring in the trading session for Friday. We've got a little bit of a pop for Japanese stocks, uh, rallying more than 200 points, so three quarters of 1%. We also saw the CPI falling 0.1% today year over year. It was expected to fall a little bit more than that to minus 0.2% anticipated, but there was a record drop in mobile phone fees uh, offsetting some of those oil prices uh, during the course of the month. So that was one factor on the data that you can see. It is in the green. Other markets, a little bit soggy from Hong Kong to China, off uh, just over four-tenths of a percent. But the Australian market uh, trying to stage a little bit of green for the Friday trade, up a tenth of a percent. The opening calls here in Europe, uh, we had a, a decent oil session yesterday which helped narrow some of the losses over the course of the trading week. A, a pop on the benchmark, uh, the stock Europe 600, by just over one and a quarter percent. So over the course of the week, we're down by just over a tenth of a percent. Some of the markets that have uh, outperformed some of the Nordic markets, the DAX is actually down by about a third of a percent and the French market off about eight tenths. So the green you're seeing on the boards this morning, if it transpires, may just minimize some of that red ink we're still sitting on at this point over the course of the trade. U.S. futures, uh, let's take a look at those early indications. Uh, we've been closely keeping watches. Uh, some of our sessions very much influenced by the mood music stateside. And you can see it is a, a firmer note this morning as we set up for that trade later on today, Jeff. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. That Philly Fed data, very interesting, throwing the cat among the pigeons, Karen. And I think really raising the question around, uh, is the boom already priced in, the rebound? Uh, is it already in the price? And is this as good as it gets? Because the latest voice to weigh in on the issue of valuations is Carlisle Group's David Rubenstein. He's basically making the point that a lot of others have made that uh, equity prices at this point do look steep. Right now, the, the markets are expensive. There's no doubt that if you want to buy a privately traded company for a buyout or a, a uh, minority investment in a private kind of company, you're going to pay double-digit EBITDA multiples when you might not have had to pay that a couple of years ago. So the prices are much higher. And one of the reasons for that is that investors are willing to take somewhat lower rates of return. Because interest rates have been so low, investors are willing as an alternative to take lower uh, private equity returns than they might have five or six years ago. The uh, weekly jobless claims data, I think, was interesting. And uh, there was something in there for both sides of the argument, because as we saw the numbers pick up in May, at least the figure came in below 500,000. So the weekly jobless claims fell to their lowest level since mid-March in 2020, as the labour market shows further signs of improvement from the pandemic. Around 444,000 Americans made an initial claim, which was actually lower than the forecast. So where does that leave us on the Phillips curve and the argument around uh, unemployment vs inflation? Well, David Rubenstein also weighed in on the inflation debate, saying he isn't concerned at the moment. When we went to college, the average textbooks used to say that three or four percent inflation was actually pretty uh, standard and okay. 
So we're really only talking about inflation that might go above the 2% we've had for some time. And I think if it went above 2% for a while, the Fed would be okay. If it got the four, five, six, and 7%, that's a different story. But I don't think anybody's predicting that. So I don't really think inflation is um, is a big concern now, certainly not anything compared to what we've had in the past. Some very interesting comments there. Let's get some more interesting comments from uh, Hani Reda, who is the global multi-asset portfolio manager at Pinebridge Investments. Hani, lovely to see you, my friend. Look, here's a thing. You're talking about, and as indeed is a lot of people at the moment, talking about tapering is the new tapering and such taper talk could flatline markets throughout the rest of the year end. If we were coming from Mars or perhaps just turned over from the BBC, so, i.e. someone who knows nothing about markets, uh, wouldn't it be extraordinary uh, to have this conversation where we're saying things are getting better, but everyone's really worried about it as well? Surely the economic momentum and growth that will come towards corporations from a better post-pandemic economy Economy, uh, surely that outweighs worries about minor tapering here and there. Uh, good morning, Steve. Good to see you guys. Well, look, the the, the key to to that to answer that question to me is that what drives markets is not really the level of growth. It's the rate of change. It's that second derivative. And yes, the level of growth is already very strong and will remain so for a few more months. But we're anticipating that rate of growth to peak and to then sort of moderate. And when that happens, the character of markets do change. So that's one of the factors that we're pointing to, along with the signal that the liquidity train is starting to slow down. Uh, And the third being um, what we could call maybe persistently transitory inflation, which we still think is is transitory, but could cause some uh, indigestion for markets uh, as it maybe persists for the rest of this year. So that combination, we call it a troika of, of headwinds, would be something that can just offset this uh, uh, strength that we're seeing right now. You and I know it's very persuasive, and yet, uh, and yet, now that we've got a Federal Reserve that refuses to look at outlook, it is now looking at outcomes. Means that by nature, it could potentially be behind the curve instead of being too aggressive on the tightening front as well. And I hear about your troika as well, but I could probably match that with my own troika. But I can only uh, just say one or two factors now, and that is buybacks continue as well. The cash. Uh, is still going to be huge coming from individuals as well as corporations. Uh, and, and by and large, as I say, the Federal Reserve doesn't look like it's changing rates rather than the uh, the asset purchasing anytime soon. So I hear your argument and it is persuasive, but there is a counter. No, and I would agree. And thank you for raising those. I would like to put our comments into context. We're already currently probably more pro-risk than others have been and have been positioned that way for the last 12 months. And we and our clients have been rewarded for that. What we're talking about is really just tapping it down towards neutral. We're not talking about an outright de-risking. We still think that we're in a multi-year expansion. And so we think there's a lot of returns to be gained over time. Uh, over the years to come, not even months or so. It's just that within those expansions, you get meaningful pullbacks. And these are the type of conditions that can lead to those. Some clients who have very long-term positions or strategic asset allocation can look through those. What we're saying is that on a risk-reward basis, it makes sense to take some of those profits off the table, but remain certainly at least neutral on the level of risk that you're taking. 
we're not talking about outright de-risking uh, at this point. Honey, we started out the year talking about uh, what was going right for a lot of Japanese companies, sort of technology that they had built up in some of these businesses and how well poised they were for the future. But in recent times, we've seen a fairly aggressive sell-off. You put this down to the virus, but I question that uh, because what we have witnessed in some of the other markets, investors have been able to see their way through uh, some of the, the downbeat uh, moments that they've witnessed around the pandemic. So is it really just the virus or is there something else going on with Japanese stocks at this point? That's a good point. Um, I think if you look at prior to this kind of uh, pullback in Japanese equities, the Nikkei was actually keeping up with the S&P. That's no mean feat, as, as we all have seen uh, over the years. And so the fact that it actually coincided when we started to see uh, issues with the virus and you know the, the actual vaccine rollout, I think that correlation is is not necessarily causation, but it's kind of compelling that that's really the primary reason why you've seen a pullback at this point. But to your point, we think that uh, we we will see a rebound from from Japan, uh, partly because of this global growth backdrop that's helpful, but also because Japan's manufacturing has actually lagged uh, others. And a lot of it has to do with the auto sector because of those chip shortages which we think are going to resolve over time. And so this becomes a, a better entry point for a global growth proxy that has lagged, has all the ingredients that we think can allow it to, to play catch up. Uh, honey, let's talk about your highest conviction trade then, which is European equities. We keep hearing about how favorable fund managers are for this region, but uh, yet the markets had a little bit of wobble this week. Even with the re-entry point now, we're trading not too far off the highs of this year, and you called out the Spanish market, in particular the IBEX. How willing are you to wait for further pullbacks at this stage to, to bolster exposure? Well, we're already fully exposed there. So this is a, a market that we had been accumulating exposure to uh, for the last few months or so. And so we're actually already positioned for that. We're not really waiting for, for a pullback. And it's already actually quietly done quite well year to date, actually outperforming most markets. And we think there's still some room to go with that. So we don't need a, a, a pullback uh, in European equities. And, you know, there's been a bit of a wobble, you, you use that word, but I would say that it's been remarkably stable in even the last few weeks uh, where we've seen wobbles elsewhere. Europe has actually been much more resilient because of the fact that we are imminently going to see that reopening. Europe is up next. Hanny, copper's come an awful long way, but you still make the case that it represents the only commodity that's in a super cycle. Are you not worried that maybe we're seeing the credit impetus and the growth impetus topping out here? Why do you still like copper? Well, actually, to, to be fair, uh, we're, we're not exposed to copper. We're just um, uh, recognising that there is some uh, potential oversheet potential, uh, capacity there. Uh, partly because of the liquidity situation. But actually, that's the market that I think is most vulnerable to that troika that I referred to earlier. And to your point, credit growth pullback in China, uh, any signal that we're seeing a change in liquidity from the Fed, and most importantly, a peak in PMIs becomes uh, a serious set of issues for copper that is already in overshoot territory. Uh, so that's not a market that we, are, we have exposure to. Uh, we would be looking for a pullback as a potential entry for you know, what is, I would call, a copper super cycle, not a broader 
commodity super cycle. And Hani, you're one of the few um, managers that we've spoken to that's actually mentioned Huarong in your notes, which has intrigued me. So let me ask you about it, since you talked about China. Um, so far, it appears that the government is going to make whole those who do have investments in this impaired asset manager. Um, how confident are you that um, the Chinese government will actually make everybody good and that this will keep a lid on any further widening of credit spreads? Well, it's a tr- tricky situation, uh, Jeff. There's a, a lot of signals that have been quite mixed. So now our specialists tell us that we uh, do expect them to continue to, to, to make uh, investors whole on this. Uh, but it's a difficult risk to assess. And it would be not just a China credit or even an Asia credit issue if they don't. This would be a serious global markets issue uh, if China were to default on what is a very systemic uh, uh, credit. Uh, some would even say it's the Lehman moment in China were that to happen. Now, that is not what we're expecting, but that is the seriousness of the issue to have. Hani, lovely. Thank you very much indeed for your time today, sir. Really good to hear your thoughts. Uh, Hani Reda, who is a global multi-asset portfolio manager at Pinebridge Investments. Right, moving on. JP Morgan has picked out a number of global stocks it has described as cheap. Wow. But the bank says there's only a small window to take advantage. Uh, For more on that, check out CNBC Pro. Uh, Coming up on the show, the US Treasury signals a potential crackdown on digital currencies, saying they could pose significant problems. Uh, We'll have more on this after the break. And Karen. For more on a tumultuous week in equity markets and Oatly's bumper IPO debut, you can check out the Squawk Box podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. Australia's beef exports to the UK could see a tenfold spike if the two agreed to a free trade deal. That's according to the Australian agricultural company, the country's biggest cattle farmer. British officials say an agreement may be reached by June, despite concerns over how the pact would impact UK farmers. And just a note on the numbers already, 0.15% of Aussie beef is sent over here currently. Our biggest export market for Australian beef is Japan at this stage. It was China, but that's been sliding recently around trade tensions. So it's back to being Japan at this point. Jeff. I think we all love a bit of Wagyu, don't we, if you're talking about beef, Karen. But let's uh, let's move on and let's talk about this EU-China story because there's quite a row brewing now. The EU has stopped ratification of a new investment deal with China until Beijing lifts sanctions against 10 European lawmakers. The agreement would see funds from the bloc receive greater protection in China but has faltered over EU criticism of Beijing's treatment of Uyghur Muslims and the language 
in the parliamentary uh, statement was very strong. They talked about crimes against humanity and Beijing's uh, crackdown on dissent in Hong Kong as being two issues that needed to be focused on and had caused the suspension. Sam has more in this report. The EU-China investment agreement has been put into the freezer for now after the EU parliament voted overwhelmingly to put its ratification on ice. Now, this is until Beijing lifts sanctions on EU officials who were targeted back in March in retaliation for sanctions slapped against China over alleged human rights abuses against Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang. So this marks a major blow to the relationship and a setback for both sides. The pact uh, was seven years in the making and was finally agreed to back in December and aims to create a level playing field for EU companies doing business in China. Ratification is an important step in this process here for it to take effect, but it's really no surprise the EU Parliament has decided to freeze this given the sanctions had already cast doubts and raised big questions about the progress of this deal. Now, China has defended these sanctions, saying they're a legitimate response. It says this investment agreement is not a gift and hopes the EU can meet China halfway. Meanwhile, an editorial in Chinese state media overnight said there is no way China will lift those sanctions under pressure from the European Parliament. China, of course, has repeatedly denied claims of human rights abuses and repeatedly warned other countries to stay out of its internal affairs. And this just underscores the mounting international pressure on China over this issue and now the potential economic fallout from that. In Singapore, I'm Sam Bardis. Back to you. Thanks, Sam. Uh, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has called on companies around the world to pay at least 15 percent tax on earnings. Yellen said the move would help make global tax regimes fairer and prevent a, quote, race to the bottom between countries slashing rates to attract foreign businesses. U.S. Treasury says it will require cryptocurrency transactions worth over $10,000 by businesses to be reported to tax authorities. Officials warned digital coins could pose significant problems, including illegal activities and risk to financial stability. Arjun, a whole suite of different businesses are cropping up using digital coin at this point, not regulated by the likes of the SEC and, of course, uh, tax authorities at this stage. So what comes next? Uh, How are you reading the tea leaves at this point? Yeah, I mean, this particular uh, regulation isn't necessarily seen as a big deal at the moment in the crypto community, mainly because it applies to businesses. And the fact that Bitcoin transactions for businesses are such an insignificant amount at this point, um, it's not going to really have a huge impact. And you saw that there wasn't much movement on the Bitcoin price in reaction to this. Uh, as you mentioned, though, look, more and more businesses are looking towards Bitcoin. We've seen, obviously, some of the high profile names like Tesla, Square, etc., buying up Bitcoin. So that's certainly something... Uh, we're going to be keeping an eye on out whether that's something that uh, becomes more widespread. But at this moment, it doesn't seem like a huge deal. I think what it does signal, though, is a willingness, of course, from the regulators to look at Bitcoin and other crypto assets more closely. This particular announcement from the Treasury Department hasn't really sort of changed the outlook in any way. It's just brought some of the reporting requirements for crypto assets in line with cash for businesses. But certainly there's, there's much more going on here on the regulatory front, not just in the US. Of course, you've seen it. Uh, Uh, in China over the past few years, uh, in the EU as well. So what's happening now is just governments around the world trying to figure out how to regulate this. Now, 
there, there could be some negative impacts on the market, of course, if it, it means perhaps higher taxes, some people scared off, maybe trading's harder. But overall, I think uh, people are seeing this as a good move. It legitimizes to some extent the crypto space. Uh, it's making it perhaps more safe for consumers. But clearly, I think uh, there's a lot of, uh, at the moment, debate and how exactly to move forward with regulation in every market. China's taken a very hard-line stance, of course. Other markets have kept it a little bit more loose, and that's a debate that's definitely going to continue over the next few years. Excellent. Um, Arjun, um, you know what I'm going to say now. You're rocking it in the roll neck or the turtleneck today, my friend. I haven't seen anybody wear it better since this gentleman in the 1960s. Now, I don't know if you've got a screen. Well done to the team. This is Roger Moore as Simon Templar in the pre-James Bond era. I have not seen a man wear a turtleneck better than that in many years. And you are now, I didn't know if they were casting for a new Simon Templar. No, I thought, aren't they casting for a new Bond? I'm, I'm up for the role if it's going to happen. Uh, <laughs> I think there's something slightly cooler about Simon I'll tell you Simon what, no, honestly, Steve, it's so... It's so hot here in South China. I couldn't bring myself to put a shirt on today. So I've just gone with a very short sleeve. Well, well, what about the vest top then, Arjun, on the next hit, if it's that hot? No, looking really good. Anyway, Arjun, I love it. You know I do. I think you carried off better than I could ever do. Thank you very much indeed for that, Arjun. Right, Karen, you have Richmond breaking. Yes, from luxury to luxury. Let's take a look at Richmond. (laughs) We've got numbers crossing. And uh, this company, of course, uh, very much... Uh, known for the timepieces market, but also uh, fairly big in apparel these days too. It's uh, been pointing to what it's seen in terms of closures of uh, sales operations, and that's had an impact logistics centers and uh, manufacturing sites. Initial lockdown measures began to ease. Sales grew by 17% and by 12% at constant actual exchange rates. The actual Q4 sales growth, though, this has crossed at 36% and 30% at constant and actual exchange rates, respectively. They're talking about a strong start to the financial year with accelerating trends across all business areas. Uh, strong performance led by jury masons. Um, that's also, uh, I guess, somewhat tied to the timepiece market where you've seen a store of value around luxury. It's also happening in jewellery. Now, online has been strong, of course, in Asia Pacific. That's been flagged up. And uh, solid retail sales is uh, now the line they're using. Digital enabling more diverse customer journeys and underpinning retail sales. So that is a a line about uh, where they can sell to. The performance in mainland China contributing to 19% of sales growth in the Asia Pacific. So that market is still solid at this point. So there's a slight problem here. And don't get me wrong, after our conversation with the CEO, Mr. Duffy of Watches of Switzerland yesterday, I get it. It's a great business. There are people out there of all demographics and wealth brackets that have a lot of cash to spend. It's something that Jeff makes the point very clearly and very eloquently as well. But there is a problem with what you're paying for this company, what you're paying for this growth story as well. And and if I said to the viewers now, this stock is trading at exactly the same level as its five-year high. Not its pre-pandemic, just the year before. It's five-year high. It is trading in terms of the pure money at virtually the same level, at just circa 95 Swissy per share. And that's one point. The second point, it trades at 28 times forward. That is a meaty valuation, even in the luxury space. And if we think back about the cycle of luxury valuations, when historically they've been low, they've been trading at 17, 18. Historically, when they've been high, they have a mean of 25 times forward. You are paying, once again, a premium for an excellent stock and an excellent company in many, many ways, as you just pointed out. 
That's my worry. Right. Uh, just alignment on the dividend, uh, proposed dividend of two uh, Swissy per share. Uh, one but other it's line. Paltry. It's it's 1% divvy. Right. So you're not buying in for the, the cash payout. One other line, though. I mean, we keep hearing about the future of e-commerce. And this is a business that's had net a porter. And, and don't forget, that's a very real struggle to buy luxury. I think online luxury repeatedly, week after week, when there's nowhere to go with a lot of this clothing. So... If you think about the next phase, if there is this peacocking luxury phase that goes on, a business like this comes back into the fore and perhaps you recapture some of the better ranges on the stock price. On the back not of some people I know forward buying luxury, Karen. Not me. I know, I know for a fact you bought a beautiful dress in lockdown. Oh, that was, uh, <laughs> it was about the only purchase and it was heavily discounted. <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing it. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.